During the years that Vincent van Gogh was painting, a newfangled technology was increasingly popular. A technology for creating images, not with pencil or paint, but by drawing with light. They called it photography, a way of creating pictures that were more realistic than ever, or so their promoters claimed. Vincent disagreed and declared that, in his painting, he was seeking a form of art more realistic than photography. And so we might ask, what would that look like, a painting that's more realistic than a photograph? For Van Gogh, the idea was to capture not just the light, not just the shapes and details of a scene, but the emotion, the character and tenor, the feeling of the scene, the essence of the subject in the image. After all, every picture leaves things out. It can include everything. And so the artist, whether painter or photographer, is always choosing which details to include or highlight, which to leave out or overshadow, and which aspects or patterns to bring out, to emphasize, or even enhance in order to evoke the subject's essence. In storytelling, it's the same. A story, including a true story, is by its nature a simplification of events, a selection of some details over others, drawing out particular contours and shaping those contours into a storyline. And this happens not only in the little everyday stories we tell, but also, and maybe even especially, in the big stories, the classics we pass down from generation to generation. In the Christian tradition, it doesn't get any more classic than the stories of Holy Week, the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of Jesus' death and resurrection. But first, that fateful week begins with the tale of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, commemorated on Palm Sunday, a story that Van Gogh's masterpiece, Starry Night, can help us see with new eyes. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. Suppose your Aunt Grace dies, and someone asks you to tell a story about her at her memorial service. It goes without saying that the story should be true, but it also goes without saying that the story should epitomize Aunt Grace. It should really get to the heart of who she was, like the iconic portrait of her on an easel up front, the one that everybody walked past as they entered the service. Now, such stories are often passed around, told by different storytellers, polishing a detail here, differing on a detail there, but your job, as you well know, is to sift through and select and arrange those surface details in a way that reveals the deeper meaning underneath the surface. Your job, in other words, is to tell a story that evokes an essence, an icon of Aunt Grace that allows us to remember her and to celebrate her now that she's gone. Vincent once wrote to his sister, it often seems to me that the night is even more richly colored than the day, colored in the most intense violets, blues, and greens. If you look carefully, you'll see that some stars are lemony, others have a pink, green, forget-me-not, blue glow. 
It's clear that to paint a starry sky, it's not nearly enough to put white spots on blue-black. In his masterpiece, Starry Night, Vincent brings these ideas to life. Violets and blues and greens and lemony yellows swirl on the canvas. He painted the picture during his year-long stay in an asylum in southern France. It's an imaginative composite, combining the view of the night sky out his window with other studies he'd done previously of the town and landscape. He likely painted it in a single day, perhaps even in a single sitting. He considered it an example of what he called a more spontaneous drawing, as opposed to a more deliberate representational style, which he dismissed as delusive precision. Now that's an interesting phrase, delusive precision. We usually think of precision as getting us closer to the truth of things, but here Vincent suggests the opposite, that too much precision can delude us, can distract us from the truth. Instead of precision, then, Vincent thought a more lyrical, poetic fluency with vibrant colors and bold brushstrokes applied with swift spontaneity could, as he put it in a letter to his brother Theo, express the purer nature of a countryside. That was his goal, not simply to paint a starry sky, white spots on blue-black, but rather to paint the purer nature of a starry sky, all swirling yellow and green and forget-me-not blue. And if someone were to rush in today to the Museum of Modern Art and say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't right, this isn't true, this isn't how a starry sky looks, there's no swirling green and blue, the stars aren't lemony yellow, the moon's not that big, this painting is false. Well, I think we'd all agree that this person has, to put it mildly, missed the point of what Vincent is trying to do. He's not taking a photograph. He's reaching for a form of art that's more realistic than photography. He's trying to evoke the essence of what it's actually like to look up into a clear starry night, how it really feels, and in this deeper sense, how it really looks. It's like someone barging in on Aunt Grace's memorial service, interrupting your story about her. No, 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 that's not right. That's not how it happened. It, it was this, not that. The objector may or may not be technically right about this or that detail in your story, but in any case, to put it mildly, they're missing the point of the occasion and the point of what you're trying to do, which is to evoke an essence of Aunt Grace, of what it was really like to know her. That's the truth you're trying to convey with that story you're telling, right? That's the truth of the experience you're trying to create with that story you're telling, right? That's the truth that matters in that moment, in the memorial service. And frankly, in that moment for the dearly beloved gathered here today, the details are just that, details. What matters is what the story points to. What matters is the story's deeper meaning. What matters is remembering and honoring, and in that sense, loving and grace. Palm Sunday commemorates Jesus' jubilant entry into Jerusalem. Essentially a piece of street theater dramatizing the prophet Zechariah's ancient prophecy. The long-awaited divine monarch arrives on a humble donkey, announcing 
peace to the nations. And the crowds play their part too, rejoicing and shouting, Hosanna, the great jubilee, the time of freedom and justice, the new era has begun. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John say the crowds were waving palm branches, an ancient sign of celebration tied to the Jewish festival of Sukkot, commemorating the Israelites' journey from bondage into freedom when in the wilderness they lived in booths or temporary shelters made of leafy branches. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. But Luke doesn't mention any palms, or any other type of branches for that matter. Luke says the crowds lay down their cloaks for Jesus and the donkey to walk on, a gesture that goes back to an old scriptural story in 2 Kings, when a group of military officers lay down their cloaks in front of Jehu, one of their number whom a prophet has just anointed as a new king. So, should we get bogged down in whether it was palms or cloaks or both? That, to put it mildly, would be to miss the larger point and to misunderstand what we're looking at. Luke's not presenting a photograph here. Luke's interested in something more realistic than that. All the gospel writers are. They're painting with vibrant colors and bold brushstrokes. They aim to evoke what it was like, what happened, but also how it felt, to experience Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, the excitement, the hope, the wonder, the anticipation, and also the tension, the anger, the desire to rise up against the Roman occupation. We have to bear in mind and to embrace in all candor the fact that the Gospels were written something like 40, 50, 60 years or more after Jesus died. And just like that story you told so well about Aunt Grace, the surface details get polished and reworked over time, and different storytellers tell it differently. That's why we call it the Gospel according to Luke and the Gospel according to John. Our ancestors could have chosen just one gospel or harmonized them into a single collage, but they didn't. It's not just that they tolerate that we hear four different versions of Palm Sunday, they insist on it. They saw it as a positive good, and so they included all four in the sacred library, with all their differences intact. And so, when we listen to these stories, it's not that we should ignore the details. No, we should listen to the details. The details are the brushstrokes, the things through which we'll catch glimpses of the deeper meanings. The point is that we shouldn't only listen to the details, and we shouldn't grasp too tightly to the details, because after we listen to the Gospel according to John, there's the Gospel according to Luke. And so we have to open our hands and open our ears to a new telling, a new testimony. And just like that story you told about Aunt Grace, these things happened too long ago to verify the details on the surface, whether it was this or that, palms or cloaks or both. So we don't listen that way, as if our job is to figure out the precise details of what Aunt Grace did or didn't say. No, that's listening with a delusive precision Instead, the invitation is to listen through the details to the depths, the deeper meanings of what's really going on, keeping our minds and our hearts open as we go. Vincent loved to paint. 
And he also loved to read. And one of the things he read with avid curiosity and enthusiasm was color theory. Like many of his mentors and contemporaries, including the pointillists and the impressionists, he was fascinated with how colors could interact and create surprising effects for the viewer. And in particular, how contrastive colors, say blues and purples on one hand and oranges and yellows on the other, can interact in ways that intensify each other. Some art historians like to say that from one angle it probably took Vincent a single day to paint Starry Night, but from another angle it took him 10 years. He spent his entire decade as a painter studying color and how color works. Early in his career, he often blended colors together into mellow hues of gray and brown, but by the end of his career, his mind had changed. He discovered how putting bold, bright colors side by side without blending them created a dynamic set of effects. He had a box he kept close by, about the size of a shoebox, filled with little balls of colored wool, corresponding to the colors of his quite expensive paints. And he'd hold them up to a work in progress to see how the juxtapositions of color looked before applying the paint to the canvas he was looking for the interaction, the interplay between the contrasts, not just contrasts in color, but contrasts in brightness or luminance. He wrote to his sister, there are colors that make each other shine, that make a couple complete each other like a husband and wife. And in another letter, he wrote of terribly disparate complementaries that reinforce each other by their opposition. It's this intensity and dynamism that caught Vincent's attention as an opportunity for a kind of painting that could evoke the purer nature of a countryside, and in particular, the purer nature of the dazzling beauty of a night sky. The sight of it, yes, and also the feeling of it, the heights and depths of it, the sheer radiance of it, a form of art even more realistic than photography, a form of painting through bold colors and intense contrast. On one hand, a stroke of blue and black. The crowds lay down their cloaks, echoing the story from Second Kings of a military leader who immediately sets out to vanquish his enemies with violence. Just a few verses after his fellow officers lay down their cloaks, Jehu personally kills his rivals with bloody vengeance. No doubt many in that Jerusalem crowd craved that kind of victory over the Roman imperial occupiers. As Jehu approaches in his horse-drawn chariot, his rivals send out one messenger after another, asking the question, is it peace? To which Jehu answers, what have you to do with peace? And on the other hand, a stroke of orange and yellow. Even as the crowds lay down their cloaks, Jesus enacts the ancient vision of Zechariah, the vision of a monarch who arrives not on a war horse, but on a donkey, and who comes declaring peace to the nations. On one hand, a stroke of blue and black, 
The crowds join their voices in celebration and praise, joy and hope. And on the other hand, a stroke of orange and yellow. The crowds soon fall away, afraid and disappointed, as Jesus is abandoned by his friends and seized and imprisoned by the Romans. The stories of Holy Week are full of terribly disparate colors that reinforce each other by their opposition. The Gospel writers set out to convey a story even more realistic than journalism, to evoke what it really felt like to see the hope of the world, the life of the world, arrive and rise and fall and rise again. On one hand, a stroke of blue and black. Some powers that be order Jesus to silence his disciples, who are stirring up the crowds. And on the other hand, a stroke of orange and yellow. Jesus replies, if these crowds were to fall silent, the stones would shout out. In other words, this is bigger than any one crowd, any one day, any one piece of street theater, any one story. This is the biggest story of them all. The story of God's redemption of the world and all creation is already swept up in the praise and celebration. Even the stones would shout out. God's redemptive love will not be silenced. God's redemptive love will not be denied. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. I can see him there, in that little makeshift studio in the asylum. He had his paints, his little box of wool, ten years of practice and color theory behind him. He paints for a single day, a day of swift spontaneity, on the one hand, a stroke of blue and black, and on the other, a stroke of orange and yellow, colors that make each other shine, that reinforce each other by opposition, that create almost a vibration on the canvas, a luminescence, and so that evoke and provide an experience of reality, the surface and the depth, the symphonic, spirited effervescence of creation, the heavens radiate and swirl, and the landscape below, bathed in moonlight and starlight, mirrors this almost liquid quality of graceful movement. The land's creatures, the cypress tree no less than the steeple, reach up to the starry sky, and the people sing what the stones would otherwise shout. Peace to the nations, glory in the highest heaven, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. The Gospel According to Vincent is a mini-series by Strange New World, a SALT project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us and drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. And if you'd like to go deeper, SALT has a devotional called Vincent van Gogh and the Beauty of Lent, which includes more details, activities, links to the paintings, and more. You can find it in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thank you.